0: Father, we praise you for you are holy. We praise you because there is none like you and you are not like us. Father, I just want to very quickly pray for Toby and Melissa. And I pray that the power of the resurrection will fall on that family and help them in their days to come. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. <coughs> okay, before I get started, I um, want to say some thank yous. I want to thank Connie for uh, filling in for me last week. I'm always anxious to just spread her around this room, and so uh, I was thankful that she was able to come and do that from, from the podium last week. I also wanted to give a shout-out to one of our very own being baptized yesterday, Jesse. That was a blessing. Okay. I would like you to imagine with me for a minute that there is a young deacon in our church. In fact, he's in your Sunday school class. And he is a godly, faithful young man. He has several children and he's a good father. He's a good provider. He adores his wife and everyone can see it. He is the real deal. And I want you to imagine that you begin seeing pictures of his wife on Facebook and Instagram and all those places. And in the pictures, she is always with other men and she's doing things that are inappropriate and she's dressed inappropriate and the comments and the captions are inappropriate. She quits coming to church and showing up at the kids' events. Meanwhile, the husband is trying to stay at home. He's, he's trying to be both parents. When he's at the office, he begins to hear the whispers that his wife has been carrying on with several of his coworkers there. Well, some of your, uh, the men from your Sunday school class decide that they will go visit him. So they go to his house and they sit him down. They wanna know how they can help. And so they, they sit him down and they say, um, how are you doing? And he begins to explain that the wife has moved out. She's living with a boyfriend. The children are very confused, and that makes him angry. And then he breaks down and begins to sob and cry. And he says, I love her, I want her back. She's the mother of my children. She's my wife. I know that she's done awful things, but she's my wife. If you did your reading this week, the chapter was entitled, The Enemy of Holiness. What is the enemy of holiness? What is it that opposes our holiness, that is hostile to our pursuit of holiness? Well, the short, easy Sunday school answer to that would be sin, okay? Sin and holiness, they're in polar opposition. They cannot exist together. So if we are to talk about the enemy of holiness this morning, we're going to have to address the issue of sin. And so that's what we want to do. And we're going to go about it a little differently. Usually when we talk about this, we, ta- we go to Genesis chapter 3. Today we're going someplace different. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1? Hosea chapter 1. And if you're using the old-fashioned Bible, uh, paper, by the paper Bible, um, you may need to pull out your table of contents on this one. We don't go there often. We are at Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." All right. Our goal this morning is going to make two lists. We're going to make a list and discuss some of the specific sins that are enemies to holiness. And then we also want to make another list about just some generalizations about the nature of sin. Okay? And we're going to use the book of Hosea to do it. Now, before we get going, I want to give you some context. I want to put this co- book in its context to help us understand it. All right, so look back at verse 1. It tells us that Hosea was the son of Beeri, that's giving his genealogy, and then it tells us the time period, it's telling us the kings that were reigning during his ministry. Now, when you see something like this happen, this is one of the ways that the Bible is letting you know that this is a real person, okay, this is an historical person, and that's important because there are some that say that Hosea is merely a parable or an allegory, Okay, and he's not real. Well, that's not true, but this is why they say that. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay, did you see the repeated word there? Three times. It's intended to get your attention. It's intended to shock you. Okay, some of your versions may say harlot. Some of your versions may say prostitute. Now, as you can imagine, this becomes a very controversial passage. Some say that this means that God is telling Hosea that God is prophesying. And he's telling Hosea, okay, you go marry a wife, and she is going to one day become a prostitute. Then there's the other side of the camp that says that God is saying, no, 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 he's telling her, go to marry a practicing a uh, prostitutes, maybe a temple prostitute or something like that. There's some other interpretations, but those are the main two. And, and people and the commentaries and the teachers, they're usually pretty much 50-50, 50-50 split on this. Uh, they don't agree on it. And we're not going to try to uh, solve that mystery today because both options are awful. God is telling Hosea, go marry a wife And know in advance, she's going to cheat on you. She's going to be unfaithful. She's going to dishonor your name. She's going to break your heart. Okay, now you might be thinking, why? Why Why would he do that? Why would he ask this of Hosea? Well, the Bible tells us. Look what it says in verse 2. For the land commits great whoredom, By forsaking the Lord, great whoredom. Why does God use that terminology? Why does he not just say they commit sin or they break the law or they they are terrible citizens of my kingdom? Why call them whores? Interestingly, when God addresses the Gentile nations, he doesn't use that type of language. In fact, they are often judged for the way they treat Israel. Now, why is that? Mm because Israel was holy. Israel had been chosen out from among the nations and made holy. God had set them apart and he had entered into covenant with them. He had a marriage-like relationship with them. And so God tells Hosea, my people are unfaithful. They act like whores. And so you are to go and you are to marry a harlot and your life is going to become a walking, talking parable. Your life is going to become a visual aid. So the people will be able to look at you and your faithfulness and your heartbreak and they will know what I am like. And then they will look at your wife, your cheating, unfaithful wife, and they will have a picture of what they are like. You see, the people, Hosea was a godly prophet. So the people would look at him and they would say, why did you marry her? Why do you stay with her? Why do you put up with her? And he would say, oh, I am so glad you asked. Now, the beauty of the book of Hosea is that it pulls back the curtain and it lets us see something about God that you might not know about him if you didn't read the book of Hosea. And that is in the book of Hosea, God presents himself as the wounded lover, as the faithful, passionate, jealous lover. Now, is he a righteous judge? Absolutely. Is he the creator of the universe? Absolutely. Is he a passionate, jealous lover? Yes, he is. And you see, when it comes to our holiness, we need to understand that. Okay, next verse. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, Hosea immediately obeys. He marries a woman named Gomer, and she conceives and bears him a son. Now, she will go on to have other children, but they will not be described in that way, so there's always a question as to who the uh, father is of those children. All right, next turn to chapter 2 because her story continues. Chapter 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the whore She has conceived them, has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better to me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Okay, Gomer, she plays the whore. She acts shamefully. She's cheated, and she tells you why. Look what she says in verse 5. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. I want to read that again. And this time I want you to count the personal pronouns. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I counted nine. She could have said that with two or three. But you see, she's consumed with herself. And so she cheats. Nowadays, we are a me, myself, and I generation. We are self-absorbed. We are consumed with ourselves. We are a generation that cannot do anything unless we first take a picture of ourselves doing it. Did you know that 2014 was dubbed the year of the selfie? And one of the most popular Christmas presents was the selfie stick. I came across this. It said in 1995, the selfie stick appeared in a book of useless Japanese inventions. 1995, considered useless. 20 years later, people can't live without it. We love ourselves. We love our flesh. Now, next week, we're going to address how we are to deal with our flesh. This week, we want to just establish it's an enemy of holiness. Okay, so number one on your enemy list, indulging the flesh is an enemy of holiness. we cannot indulge our flesh or promote ourselves and pursue holiness at the same time. Now, I want to show you something. Keep your finger in Hosea cuz we're coming back, but turn to Galatians 5:16. Galatians 5 This will be familiar to you, but we want to refer to it in the weeks to come, so I want you to see it this morning. Galatians 5:16 says this, but I say Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, we can't feed our fat flesh and enlarge our flesh and be holy at the same time. They're opposed. They're enemies. Okay, back to Hosea. Hosea, there's another enemy that comes up in this verse. And that is as you read it, you get the impression that Gomer is totally unconcerned about being faithful and set apart to her husband. She doesn't even seem to see it as a requirement for marriage. Now, we talked several weeks ago about the George Barna survey done in 2006 on holiness and they concluded at the end of that study that um, the American church is not obsessed with holiness. They're not even convinced of something that, that God requires. There's no sense of urgency for it. And so our next enemy that we want to write is number two, apathy and unfaithfulness. Apathy. Now, there may be many different reasons that a person is apathetic. There may be many different reasons that a person doesn't know that holiness is required. But for now, we want to understand they're an enemy of the holiness. All right, I want to go back to our story. Hosea marries Gomer. Gomer starts cheating on him. And she says, I'm going to go to my lovers. They give me bread. They give me drink. They give me stuff. They give me nice stuff. What's so bad with a little unfaithfulness? It's not really hurting anything. Look at this bread and oil I've got. The author in the book told the story of Timothy Treadwell. He was the bear specialist that would go out into the wild and live among the bears and he would videotaped them and he went on the talk shows and described them as mostly harmless party animals. And then he was later mauled to death by bears. He did not correctly judge the beast. And it cost him his life. All right, now, the same thing applies to sin. We have to recognize it as the monster that it is. So our third enemy, number three, <clears throat> minimizing, redefining, or attempting to manage our sin is an enemy of holiness, you could also say rationalize there. And the idea here is that we need to call sin what it is. We have to be careful that we don't underestimate it or that we tolerate it even in small doses. All right. I want to talk a little bit. Gomer's cheating. I want to talk about what does Hosea do. Now, for one thing, look in verse 6. Verse six says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Okay, Hosea has a plan. He says, I am going to build a hedge of thorns around the house. I'm going to make a wall of thorns. So in the evening, when Gomer gets the urge to go out and meet her lovers, she's going to have to first climb over that hedge. She's going to scratch her arms and legs, and it'll be a little painful. But I'm going to put obstacles in her way. I'm going to make it difficult for her to cheat. Maybe that will work. Do you know that's what God does for you? If you're a believer, do you know that's what God does for you? He gives you his Holy Spirit, and he puts a hedge of thorns around you to protect you. Why does he do that? Because he's a jealous lover. He makes it so that you have to scratch your hands and your legs in order to sin against him because he is jealous for your holiness. I can remember a time in high school. I was in high school and um, I was talking with a friend and we were cutting up Another girl. Now, that's what we called it back in the old days. We called it, we say, we were cutting up. And that meant you were being, you were being ugly and, and saying bad things about the person, trash-talking. And I no sooner said something unkind, and I turned around, and the girl was standing right there. She just showed up out of nowhere. She's standing right there. And I was embarrassed, very awkward. I didn't know if she heard me. I didn't know if she knew I was talking about her. It was just very awkward. And so later, I have the nerve to complain to God about it. And I tell him, you know, I, I just, I don't get this. I'm trying to be good, and yet I get, I always get caught. I got girlfriends that trash talk people all the time, and they never get caught. They never get called out. But I do one thing, and I got the girl standing right beside me. You see, at the time, I did not understand Hebrews 12. I didn't realize at the time that God wants to make me uncomfortable when I slander and when I gossip. You see, he's got a hedge around me to protect me because he is jealous for my holiness. Let me tell you something, God surrounds you with a hedge of thorns. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives you his word to warn you. He gives you the body of Christ to confront you. He, puts, he gives uh, circumstances to deal with you. Listen, you don't ever sin where you haven't climbed the hedge. God says that with every temptation, there is a way of escape. And if we are not taking that way of escape, we are climbing through thorns. That brings us to the first thing on our sin list. And that is, number one, sin deceives. It dulls us to truth. The book talked about how it causes us to lose our moral compass. It lulls us so that we become comfortable with our sin. And, you know, the more comfortable you get with your sin, the more desensitized you are. You know, the more you're climbing through those thorns, you get more desensitized to it. And you start looking for gaps, and you start looking for easy ways to get through it. And pretty soon, you you know, you're getting used to the scratches and the scrapes, and pretty soon you don't even know that they're there. That's what sin, that's how sin works. Number two, for our sin column, sin disappoints. Now I want us to look at verse seven. And this is um, talking about Gomer. Number seven, verse seven says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. All right, now in the context, this is prophetically talking about Israel because they're about to be carried off by the Assyrians. And once that starts happening, they're going to change their mind real quick and realize they were better off before. But in the story of Gomer and Hosea, what can it teach us about sin? Well, a couple things. First of all, we see that Gomer, she is pursuing her lovers, She's, per, she's climbing the fence. She's not overtaking them. And she's seeking but not finding. In other words, the cheating's had its moments, but in the end, it disappoints. It's not satisfying. You know, you will never, ever sin and then look back and say, that was such a great plan. I'm so glad I did it that way. Or boy, wow, that was satisfying. That's, that will never happen because sin will never deliver what it promises. It will always disappoint. Number three, sin will try to dominate you. Now at first, Gomer, she sneaks out of the house. She gets to her lovers. It's fun because the lovers are giving her stuff. And then she leaves Hosea. And at some point she moves out with another man. And somewhere along the line, she becomes indebted. She becomes enslaved. And we read about that in chapter 3. So turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is the Lord talking to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethege of barley, And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, here's how this goes. The news comes to Hosea that Gomer's on the auction block. She's been unfaithful. She's climbed the fences. She's left home. Things have deteriorated so badly that she is now a slave. She's a slave being sold on the auction block. And so God tells Hosea, go buy her and bring her back. Now, usually when a person was on the auction block, she was naked because the buyers wanted to see what they were getting for their money. It was humiliating. Now, do you think when Gomer was sneaking out and going through the thorns, do you think she ever thought she'd be, it would take her to the auction block, that she'd be standing there in her humiliation? We so often think, you know, we can handle our sin we'll stop it. We won't let it get that far. But you see, that's not how sin works. It seeks to dominate you. Usually slaves were th- sold for 30 shekels. Now she's only being sold for 15 and some barley. So either either she's on the clearance rack because her lifestyle has been hard and it's showing, or possibly Uh, He Hosea pays 15 shekels, and then he goes home, and, and he empties his barns and comes up with any money that he can in order to make up the difference and buy her back and bring her home. In any point, in any way, it brings us to our fourth point, and that is sin destroys. Everything in this story points to this. Sin is destructive. Sin destroys. Listen, you want to build up your homes? You want to build up your families. You want to build up your relationships. Understand the way sin works. Understand the nature of sin. All right. Now, at the beginning of Hosea, we read that the people of Israel were committing whoredom and that they were forsaking the Lord. Now, what I want to do with the remainder of our time is add some more specific sins to our enemy list. And to do that, turn with me to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea 4.1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. All right, God is speaking to Israel and he is saying, I have a case against you. There is no steadfast love. There is no faithfulness. There is no knowledge of God. Now, listen, those are not the words of a judge. A judge doesn't talk like that. Those are the words of a wounded lover. Think back to our deacon. Let's imagine he sits his wife down. What does he say to her? He says to her, You don't love me. You're not faithful. You don't even know me. And she says to him, how can you say that? I wear your wedding band. And so then the husband begins to bring out the pictures and the receipts. And he begins to give the proof of her unfaithfulness. Okay, that's what's going on in this verse. God is saying to Israel, you don't love me. You're not faithful. You don't even know me. And this is the evidence. Now look what he says in verse 2. He says, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. What's he listing? Ten commandments, huh? He's gone through the list. He says, if you loved me, if you knew me, if you were faithful, you would keep my commandments. Now, at first, you might look at this list and think, hey, we don't swear in our house. Nobody's committing adultery there's no murder. There's no bloodshed going, into, going on in our house. Let me ask you something. <clears throat> do you watch it? What do, you, do you put it before your eyes? Do you put it before your ears in the name of entertainment? When my kids were in the home, I had some rules. No R-rated movies. None of that... Uh, tv m a stuff that mature stuff, I usually found that those r rated movies you know they had language i didn 't want the kids hearing. Um, there was usually too much sex and immorality didn 't want them seeing that and and the bloodshed and the violence i just I, I, I avoided movies like that, and my thinking was that my children were not born and raised in a war zone they did not live in a dangerous neighborhood they didn 't have to deal with 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 gunfire and bloodshed and violence so why would i treat god's kindness mm-hmm. so so carelessly by marching and prating that into my home through a tv set mm. okay so i didn't watch it when the kids were home but you know what happens when the kids grow up and move out you think oh the kids aren't around i can watch a little what's a little bit of immorality what's a little bit of violence I can handle it. And so you watch the first episode and it's pretty entertaining. You know what? It makes the second episode a little bit easier. And before you know it, you've got a whole season watched. And you're thinking, well, you know what? That really wasn't that offensive. Oh, it should have been. According to this passage, it should have been. What's the next thing for our list? Number four, lawlessness. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is an enemy to holiness. Breaking God's law is an enemy to holiness. All right, let's look at verse six. Chapter four, verse six says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now remember, God had said to him, God had said to them, you don't know me. You don't know me, and so he says, "You don't know me. You don't know my law. And since you have forgotten my law, I will forget your children." Now I want to explain that, and so we understand it correctly. Correctly, okay? What were think with me? What were the parents in Israel to be doing with their children? What were they? We've talked about this. they were to be teaching them. They were to be diligently, diligently teaching them, writing it on the doorposts, talking about it along the way, and when they sat down and when they rose up, they were to be diligently teaching their children the precepts of God, and they haven't been doing that. And so God says, you have forgotten me. You're going to have children that do not know me. All right, number five, lack, what's our next enemy? And that is lack of knowledge about God is an enemy of holiness. And we are really going to be hitting on this in, the, in uh, the next semester particularly. If we are to be holy, we have got to know God. We've got to know his word. All right? Chapter 2. We're going to go back. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 5. There's something really good I want us to see here. 2 verse 5 says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Now jump to verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Okay, do you see the problem here? Gomer is crediting her lovers, but it was really Hosea that had been providing those things. Now imagine how this works. Gomer moves out. She's living with another guy. And Hosea begins to see she's looking a little ragged. Things are looking a little rough. Life's been hard on her. Maybe he's hearing rumors about her as well. So he gets together a basket, and he puts some oil in it, and he puts some wine and maybe some fabric for something new to wear and some gold and some silver, and, and he takes it to the place where she's shacking up. But a man answers the door. The man says, here, I'll, I'll take that and see that she gets this. And then that man takes the, to that basket into her, to Gomer, and she says, wow, you're really good to me. Let's go party. Let's go make an offering to Baal. You see, God was saying to Israel, I lavished, I lavished good things on you. I provided for you, but you credited your lovers and then you used what I gave you to worship in idolatry. Now he says it again. I want you to look in chapter 10. He visits this again, chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Now that's, those are the altars for idol worship. Now watch this. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. That's pillars, idol worship. Let's read that again. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Now Hosea (coughs) is writing this during the reign of King Jeroboam. And King Jeroboam was a very successful, prosperous king. They were able to expand the kingdom during his reign. But you see, the people didn't use their prosperity to honor God. They used it on their idolatry. They used it on their pleasures. And so God says to them, I am the one that provided for you, but you didn't use your wealth to glorify me. You used it to cheat on me. When I came back, I went to Florida last February, and when I came back, I brought these bags of oranges and grapefruit, and I gave some away, gave some to a a girlfriend of mine. And several weeks later, she was explaining to me, oh, yeah, those oranges were great. I, I took some of them, and I juiced them, and put them in little ice cube trays and froze them. And she said, every time now when I want to make a salad, I just pull out a little ice cube and I use that orange juice in my salad dressing. I thought, wow, that's so great. And she said, "Um, yeah. She said, "Um, I can't stand to waste food. She said, where I come from, people are very poor. She says, people get up at four o'clock in the morning and have to work all day for a dollar so that they can buy food. She said, I can't stand to waste food. And you know, I was just struck with this picture of my well-stocked refrigerators, plural, refrigerators. You see, because I had some of those oranges and I threw them out and I never gave it a second thought. I waste food. I buy things I don't need. I spend my time talking about my stuff and thinking about my stuff and worrying about my stuff. And God was convicting me, you're a luxuriant vine. Next enemy materialism, gluttony, idolatry. They are enemies of holiness. All right, let's move to verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. One more. Ephraim, now that's another name for Israel. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. All right, God is telling Israel, you mix with the nations. Now Israel was supposed to be separate, but she's mixed with the nations around her, and so she's become A cake not turned. Now, I want you to pretend with me for a minute that I invite you to my house for brunch. And I put together one of my recipes uh, for my um, uh, healthy oatmeal pancakes. And I get out the griddle and I put the batter on and I make up uh, four different cakes. And just as it's about to bubble, instead of flipping it, I plate it up. And I hand it to you. And I say, would you like some syrup or blueberries on this? Now, you are likely going to say, well, you know, gee, Heidi, I would would really prefer you finish cooking it. Because I'm going to gag on that. It's not edible. Okay, that's what God is saying. He's saying to Israel, I set you apart. You were to be separate, but you have mixed with the world. You have compromised so that now you are indistinguishable and that makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. Next enemy, worldliness is an enemy to holiness. You could also put compromise, compromising, mixing with the world. This is not an exhaustive list today. Time, time is gonna prevent us from g- doing much more. But these are some of the main ones that Hosea lists. So we wanted to start there. I want to close with one last thought for our sin column. The author emphasized in this lesson that sin is so heinous because it's always against God. Yes, it hurts us. Yes, it hurts others. But it hurts God. It is against God. And um, I want us to see that. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 this is God speaking. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Okay, with your children, have you ever helped them walk by holding their hands? Maybe you even put their feet on your feet You help them walk. Or maybe as they're just starting out to walk, you're kind of hovering over them and you've got your hands covering the sharp edges and you're pushing out toys and you're, and you're moving the rugs out of the way so that they're walking and they're feeling very pleased with themselves. And they're totally clueless to all that you have done to help them out. Okay, that's what's going on here. God says, I loved you. I taught you to walk. I've picked you up in my arms. I fed you. I healed you. My love was hands-on. Now, jump to verse 8. Verse 8. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Adma and Zeboim were two cities outside of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed. And God is asking, how can I make you like them? But he doesn't ask that in a monotone, robotic voice. This is, this is the book of Hosea. This is a picture of God bent over in agony with a broken heart. And why? Because his people are unfaithful. Because his people are not holy and it breaks his heart. You see, ladies, when we sin, it is not just against some stone-faced, righteous judge. It is against a loving, passionate, jealous, hands-on lover. Our last point for our sin column is this. Sin is heinous and grievous, Because it is always against God. It is always against love. Always against love. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That you are a jealous lover. You are jealous of our holiness. And you love us with such passion. We praise you and thank you for it. Help us to be a a pure bride. Convict us. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.